This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sandra Geising, a computational scientist and associate research professor at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Sandra is one of the chairs of the US Research Software Engineers Association. And if you've listened to the episode a few back with Julian Pistorius, Sandra is the one that made that introduction. And yes, it is a really small world. So first, Sandra, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Unlike a lot of folks that I've spoken with, you have a really interesting background because you span high performance computing and distributed computing, and you also have a PhD in computer science. So maybe let's start at the beginning. Let's go back and can you tell us how you got started with scientific programming and how it led you to what you do now? So I started with computer science on my first program and implementations already in high school. That is over 30 years ago, which was not always common that you could take a class in high school at that point of time. So I was really lucky. It became my hobby and I made my hobby to my profession, but first in industry. I did an apprenticeship, so the German education system is a little bit different. You can do an apprenticeship, which is very similar to a bachelor. So for 12 years, I was in industry and first in networking and in programming and then administrator. And then I met a systems programmer group. I decided that I'm really interested in academia and research and changed to a university in Germany and in a group where I did my PhD and I wanted to contribute to research in bioinformatics. That is really still a hot topic, especially with COVID-19 at the moment. And I think it's great with my knowledge in computer science that I can contribute to research projects that eradicate diseases and look at diseases and like the situation at the moment with COVID-19. That is so important to support the researchers with good software, with well-designed software, with solutions that they can concentrate on their research instead of getting used to deal with all the typical little hurdles for non-computational scientists like HPC, like uh, data infrastructures, like command line interfaces. One of my big research topics are science gateways, which are end-to-end -end solutions, collaborative environments where you can say, yes, you can start simulations or you have data collections. So it's a term for everything that yeah accelerates science and has the intuitive user interface or a self-explanatory interface gives you access to maybe lab instruments, computing infrastructure, data infrastructures, different modes of implementations. I came to research computing really with a goal to help research projects to use computational methods which accelerate their science. So way in the beginning of your description there, you said that it started, programming started as a hobby and you turned it into a profession. How have you been able to keep it sort of fun? Like whatever attributes about your hobby that you loved it, how have you carried those forward into the profession? I think what is for me, I still love programming in between and sometimes I really miss it <laughs> in my daily life. 
But what moved it always that I switched my roles and my role progressed in general from first implementing and designing solutions, then more not implementing anymore, but designing solutions and then leading projects and being able to develop ideas together with researchers and apply for proposals and bring projects to life that help researchers to do new novel topics and novel research makes it really interesting and it's a breadth of topic in, in academia and science gateways. The science gateways I'm involved in are also very different. So for example, I work on one where we don't really deliver the science gateway, but the infrastructure in the background to connect preservation tools and environments with science gateways and be really the connecting point of yeah, the different topics. I work a lot with biologists together. I have a project with physicists. It makes it very interesting. So you've thrown around the term science gateways a little bit, and I think I know what that is, but I bet you a lot of our listeners don't. Could you give kind of a high level idea of what the science gateways are and then how sort of it works? Yeah, so science gateways, so some people might have heard about the term virtual research environment that is often also used in Europe or virtual labs. And I use these three terms equivalent to each other. And science gateways are really these end-to-end solutions or virtual environments targeted at a specific user community for each topic so that they can use the infrastructure they need to use, that they can use lab instruments or data, whatever is really important for their research goal. And that is called a science gateway. So you might have heard about cybers, for example. Julian talked about cybers in, in his po- podcast, but you might have heard about Galaxy. It's a workflow-enabled science gateways, or Globus Online has a science gateway for moving data. It's a collection of mostly nowadays web-based solutions. Two questions. If I'm a scientific user, I'm a researcher at an institution, how do I figure out how to get access to a science gateway? And then when you look across this sort of space of science gateways, how is the immersion or the higher use of cloud technologies influencing that? So as a researcher, first of all, we are really working also on that we give material to, for example, campus champions or who already have the outreach on campuses, but also have a lot of information for researchers. They have a conference with the Science Gateways Community Institute and the founder of the International Workshop on Science Gateways in Europe, which is going on for 11 years now. We really try to reach the researchers to show them we have building blocks for you to build what you need. And there are a lot of existing machine solutions already. So getting access to it, I think, is first of all really that researchers hear about them. And we work also a lot with libraries, for example, that they spread the word that there are these solutions already around and that not everything has to be reinvented. Often researchers just haven't heard about them and they need a contact to help them a little bit off the ground. So that is part of my work for the Science Gateways Community Institute to spread the word to the community. So yeah, the term is sometimes a little bit hampering 
cloud computing is definitely influencing uh, science gateways incredibly. I mean, there are now science gateways which are working with uh, Docker and different cloud infrastructures in the background. So often if users need, for example, HPC, then they go still to their local campus infrastructures because a lot of campuses have HPC nowadays. But if they don't use directly HPC but um, need distributed computing, then they often would like to use cloud infrastructures. And these connection to cloud infrastructures is supported by many different science gateway frameworks like Hub Zero, Galaxy, Apache, Avada. And I have to smile when I have when I see the Amazon Cloud user interface, which is I think on purpose a little bit confusing that people use too much <laughs> of the resources than they really need. We are aiming always that we have a good level of usability in, in our user interfaces to not confuse the user. Yeah, I totally agree. There's just Google Cloud is the same as well in Azure. There's just oh, yeah. so many <laughs> menus and buttons and you just feel like you're lost in this space of like white bouncy menus. So you mentioned workflow managers and it got me thinking about Snakemake, Nextflow, Cromwell. And one thing I think that's interesting is that a lot of these tools are sort of acting as that interface between a host and then some cloud environment. So for example, with Snakemake, you can launch something on Google Cloud, you can launch something on Amazon, you can launch something on your cluster. Do you see workflow tools like that that allow you to do that as sort of an ingredient of a science gateway? Or do you think that having a web interface to interact with that tool is really important, which I actually think Nextflow just did, but I'm not sure the other ones have yet. So science gateways are using, a lot of science gateways are using workflows, but it depends what they are made for. If a community needs a computational workflow, then these tools are great with a web user interface. It depends if you're, for example, a programmer, research software engineer, you have, and I know that I have colleagues who prefer to do everything on command line, maybe on a Jupyter hub, but that is really in their control. They don't need a different science gateway or user interface. So it depends what you want to achieve with the science gateway and which target community a science gateway has. That makes perfect sense. So let's talk a little bit more about you. I think it's totally astounding that you're both a professor and a computational scientist. I mean, that is a lot of stuff to do. Can you walk us through like a typical day in the life and tell us how you manage so much responsibility? A typical day is to have a lot of meetings per day. And only difference is that I sometimes contribute the design for a computational solution that I, some meetings are about writing proposals and developing new ideas. And some meetings are about um, writing papers and making reports for existing projects, which is not one of my favorite duties. And normally I travel also a lot to conferences and talk about my research and talk about sustainability of research software. That is one of my favorite topics and to contribute to improving the situation for career paths of research software engineers. So that is this mixture between research, research software engineer, and our delivering designs. 
how has your routine changed with the recent stay at home orders and have any of the changes been surprising or really hard or actually you liked them a lot? I worked from Chicago, working for the University of Notre Dame. So working from home was already part of my normal working schedule. But normally I would travel much more. I realized about myself, I don't mind at all to work from home. I like that. And I have also an office at the University of Chicago. I can meet with colleagues from the University of Chicago. But I'm really missing the travels, meeting with people and discuss ideas face to face in different environments that gives me always more input and somehow more energy than being the whole day at home. I'm missing this face-to-face -face interactions. I'm also one of the persons who says there is a certain level of Zoom fatigue in between because it's just different to just talk on Zoom instead of in person, have direct reactions, especially also when I give talks. A presentation. So last week, for example, was IWSG, the International Workshop on Science Gateways, not looking into all the faces and having the gestures and the reactions and the mimic is sometimes really, really taking a lot of more energy out of me than in-person meetings. I can really empathize with giving talks. I used to actually strangely like giving talks. You interact with the audience and you go up there, you can point at the board, you can jump up and down, you see people's reaction. And when you go on Zoom, all of that's gone. And even sometimes you're just like talking to yourself in an empty room because you can't even see the audience back at you. And one time yeah. I was muted, so I couldn't hear them either. And it's just fundamentally missing something. So I, I do look forward to when we don't have to do this anymore and we can have in-person conferences, but I'm also hoping that there could be better technology developed so that a remote slash virtual experience feels more like an in-person experience, at least so you can see the people that you're talking to. Oh, yes. I mean, one of the things I hope which picks really up, really to walk around with an avatar in a 3D world, but having more like a Congress is a, already a different experience, like a Zoom session. Even so I'm totally grateful for Zoom that it you know, can deliver what it can deliver at the moment. But I think also it would be nice to have more the really 3D world experience a little bit more like a real reception maybe maybe walking around seeing really a building seeing really someone giving a talk and even if it's only an avatar there's more interactions than we have at the moment yeah i'm totally with you so let's talk about research software engineering what does being a research software engineer mean to you research software engineers have i think two roles one role is really to do a fantastic design for the research problem that they get, to do the programming, the implementation. On the other hand, also to understand and communicate quite well with the researchers who might not be computational scientists, who might not be into information technology at all. How did you get involved with USRC? So there was a leadership meeting in 2018 in the UK and my name came up as someone who's aiming at improving on-campus teams and research software engineer career path and they invited me. And so they invited me and there I got to know Ian Carsten and a couple of 
other people who are now on the steering committee and I got more involved in the activities for the US. I think really had a fantastic run in the last couple of months of energy and uptake. It's really great. Yeah, the chart on our USRC site, I forget which page it's on, maybe the join page. It, it's had like, I don't know, I, don't, I wouldn't call it exponential growth, but it's a very strongly upward trend for quite a long time now. It's very impressive. What do you think are the biggest challenges for our community moving forward? The biggest challenges are still to spread the word. The US is a huge country with a lot of universities. And we had a couple of conversations also with the UK because the UK and RCEs in the UK and that they have already activities for 10 years is really a shining example what they have achieved and that there's these extraordinary jobs on uh, different levels of involvement with the uh, association and that it's now a society. But the advantage is also for the UK that if you get the big universities to be part of something like this initiative, the others will follow. That is not always the same for the US because there are so many different universities and even if the leading universities in the US take up this concept of research software engineers and will really support it, I think a couple of universities will follow, but that doesn't mean that all universities can also afford it directly or directly see the need. We have to maybe address it from both sides, from the bottom up, really with our Slack channel and with community activities and something like this podcast. And then also top down to reach out to universities on a dean level, on HR level, on the administrative level, but also funding bodies. NSF is already very on board. The Moore Foundation, they see the need that there is a need for sustainability of research software. So therefore are calls that we can get funding for workshops. Yeah, a little bit of the situation HPC was a couple of years ago, where yes, HPC is helpful, or let's say two decades ago. And nowadays nobody questions anymore that HPC is a big a part of research. Nobody would question on a campus if there's an HPC, why is HPC there? That's a really interesting comparison between HPC. I haven't thought of that before. And it makes me think, huh, how have we done this with HPC and how could that be transferred over to research software engineering? And just like off the top of my head, at least a funding model that we use at my institution is that you sort of get a bunch of labs or PIs, you get enough force to be able to buy a significant portion of a cluster. And then you're able to provide that exclusively to those labs, but then also create sort of a free tier. And then once people start using this free tier, they realize how useful it is and they slowly over time invest in it. But it really does come down to showing that you have a resource that is useful and then getting people to try it out, invest in it, and then having it sort of roll like a snowball and, and get larger. Yes, and that is exactly, I think, which is one of the models we have at the Center for Research Computing at Merlin. New faculty gets, for example, the chance to work with a research software engineer, we call them research programmer, on a project to a very, let's say, good price or almost for free. And when they realize how good it is to have someone who has experience, who knows about the design, who's 
interested to step into understanding the research, then they come back. And we have made very positive experience about that, that people are coming back to, to work with the Center for Research Computing and the, after they see that their problems are understood and that they get good, good results and well-designed results. Oh, I totally want to pick your mind on this. Can you kind of walk me through how your research software engineers kind of work with your HPC admins and resources? Because I think that's something that would be hugely useful for many institutions to know how to sort of get started with, especially if they want to, you know, start a group of research software engineers. So we have a couple of different computational scientists in different fields. Also, for example, one from the social sciences, one from computational chemistry, and they're the first contact. And then there's a manager of the research software engineers, and he's always a contact for the PI who comes from research um, to discuss the problems. And then the research software engineers can make their design. And then there's, for example, every week or every second week, a sprint review where they can present to the PIs how they understood the last user stories and everything. And then there is an exchange of ideas and feedback. And HPC, the contact to HPC depends on, on the project, of course. So if HPC is needed in the background, the HPC team is directly integrated also in the Center for Research Computing. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it because it probably seems like, oh yeah, we this is our routine. We know how this works. But I think a lot of centers are trying to figure out how to go about that now and it will be immensely useful. Yeah, I think the different roles, that was the concept of the different roles, which was set up by the current CSC director, Jarek Nawitski. And he had this vision that he has seen, okay, that there is this group, people who are really interested to do something great in research software, but don't want to go the traditional career path with having to become a postdoc or having to become faculty. And then there's the people like me in between who still like to implement, but also really like research and um, being faculty. So, so he, he had the vision for, okay, he needs these different roles. Okay. So we're coming up on time and I definitely want to be respectful of your time. So I have just a few more questions. Let's pretend that I am going on a fabulous trip first to, I guess, Chicago, then to Edinburgh and then to Germany. So for each location, can you tell me two things? One, what food I simply must try? And two, what site or place should I see? And this is, of course, not now. This is planning for the future when the Corona apocalypse yeah. is over because it would be a terrible idea to take this trip right now. So Chicago, what is always fantastic to visit is one of the museums. The Art Institute is fantastic. Food, so the deep dish pizza is something that is typical Chicago. I would suggest that you try that. In Edinburgh, the castle is a fantastic way to see also the city, but oh, this castle is very interesting. It's in the middle of the city. Food, if you never tried haggis, try haggis. This typical Scottish dish. Germany, my favorite city in Germany is Berlin. I would suggest to visit Berlin. I, I would try or suggest as food 
something with sausage or a Turkish dish, by the way, you get some of the best Turkish food also in Berlin, because Berlin is a city in Europe where the, half of the most inhabitants are Turkish compared with other Turkish cities. So after Istanbul, Berlin has the, has the most Turkish people. Final question. What do you like to do when you aren't working? When I'm not working, I like traveling to experiencing. When I'm in Chicago, I like to go to live music, which I really miss at the moment, and to stand-up comedy. It has been a pleasure chatting with you today, and I'm really grateful for all of your ideas and energy that you bring to USRC and for connecting me to Julian. And I too, I think we have a lot of work ahead of us, but I think we're going to tackle it, even if it takes a little bit of time. I hope that you stay well during these times and maybe you can find some other stand-up comedy online to watch or something like that, although it won't be anything like the real thing. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope you stay also safe and healthy and it was a pleasure talking with you.